You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Hecatias of Miletus knew how old the world was. It was an easy enough thing for him to ascertain, actually. See, Hecatias, like most Greeks of the time, possessed a detailed genealogical record of his family tree. It reached from him, at the very leafy tip, all the way back to the roots, where his familial line began with one of the Greek gods. I don't know which one, let's just say Hephaestus. For those Greeks who could trace their lineage back to a god, it was, as you might imagine, a real point of pride. So Hecatius wasn't shy about telling people. Sometime just around 500 BC, Hecatius took a long trip around the Mediterranean and Black Seas to collect information that would eventually make it into the Periodos Geis, a two-book series on the geography of the whole world, as Hecatius understood it, which is to say the northern tip of Africa, the southwestern tip of Asia, and southern Europe. In addition to maps, Hecatius provided something like light surveys of the peoples he encountered on the journey from the Straits of Gibraltar all the way around the two seas and out to the Atlantic at Morocco, including a group of Egyptian priests in Thebes who, if we believe the historian Herodotus, totally blew Hecatius's mind. According to Herodotus, who might have had some reason to make Hecateus look bad, but don't worry about it. According to Herodotus, Hecateus told the Theban priests about his divine lineage. He could, he said, trace his ancestry directly back to whichever god we said. Was it Hephaestus? He could, he said, trace his ancestry directly back to Hephaestus. And how long ago was that? Sixteen generations. 16 whole generations between Hecateus and the gods. Let's pause and do some quick back-of-the-envelope math here. Hecateus was born around 550 BC. Let's assume the mean childbearing age in ancient Greece to be... I don't know. About, how about 20 for the sake of keeping things simple? So 20 times 16 is 320 plus 550 is 870. 870 BC is when the gods first gave birth to mankind. Except, the Theban priests weren't buying it. They took Hecateus to the inner court of the Temple of Zeus and showed him a line of wooden figures. Each statue was made by a high priest of the temple, a position held for life and passed down from father to son. This was a much better record than Hecateus's. It had actual physical evidence to go along with it. 
Rather than 16 generations between them and the gods, the temple statues indicated 345. What was worse, the first statue wasn't even of a god, but just another human priest. With that, Hecateus' understanding of the Greek people, of genealogy, of history itself, and of the age of the world, completely shattered. When he wrote up his own book about the history of the Greek people after returning from his whirlwind trip around the globe, he no longer accepted the agreed-upon mythology that put most Greek families 500 years away from divinity. In the opening of that book, Genealogies, he wrote, I write what I deem true, for the stories of the Greeks are manifold and seem to me ridiculous. The skepticism Hecateus was gifted by the Theban priests and their statues became the first groaning step towards collecting and analyzing history beyond just taking myth at face value, a process that Herodotus accelerated. But it wasn't just the contents of history that were upset that day at the Temple of Zeus. It was the length of history. Because if the Thebans could trace priests back 345 generations and still not find the gods, then where were they? Just how old was the Earth? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, it's a date. If you imagine yourself with a Bronze Age level of understanding, the idea that the world had a beginning might not seem entirely persuasive. On the one hand, every person, animal, vegetable, and tool you've ever seen had a start, and an ending too, now that you mention it. Even some stuff that might have seemed at first blush to be persistent, like a big tree, if you cut it down you could see the rings, indicating that sometime, way back when, it was just a sapling. And that might be enough to make you wonder about the Earth itself, if it wasn't like the tree, or that goat, or Uncle Grok, or whatever. But it didn't have to be. Your personal anecdotal experience with chickens might reasonably lead you to believe that the world once came out of an egg, too. That's not a very good theory at all, and yet it's predicated on the same argument. As we go along this history of dating history, we're going to continually find, until extraordinarily recently, that even while various people argued this or that date for the beginning of the world, other people were always also arguing that the whole argument was moot. And up until almost as extraordinary recently, their argument was basically as good as any other. Mostly, though, we're going to focus on attempts to date the world. For a good long while, almost all of those attempts, everywhere in the world, made a similar fundamental mistake. They figured that the age of the world and the age of humankind were one and the same. Or, if not one and the same, at least very tightly, intimately related. Let's return again to Thebes, although this time we're visiting in 1820, by which time it was known, as it is today, as Luxor. There and then, Bernardino Drovetti found, or acquired, or better yet, stole, a papyrus scroll that came to be known as the Turin King List, on account of, well, I'm, that's precisely what it is. Like the Theban priest statues, the Turin King List seems to give us a long account of Egyptian history. 
Probably the list itself dates from somewhere around 1250 BC, give or take half a century. Because it's more than 3,000 years old, the king list is mostly tattered into tiny, incomplete bits. What's worse, it seems like it was jotted down kind of absent-mindedly by, uh, who knows, probably some ancient mid-level bureaucrat, given that it's written on the backside of a tax roll. Still, torn and informal as it might be, the Turin king list gives us the best idea we have of not just the history of Egyptian kings up until Ramses II, but also our best understanding of when the Egyptians at the time of Ramses II thought the world began. See, the first human king listed by name on the king list is Menes, who seems to have become the first pharaoh when he united Upper and Lower Egypt. But Menes isn't the beginning of the king list. Before him, there's the reign of the gods, when Ra, Osiris, Set, Horus, Ibis, and the rest took their turns ruling pre-dynastic Egypt, along with some demigods we don't know a whole lot about, like does not thirst and possessor of noble women, which most Egyptologists think indicates a sort of transitionary period between the age of gods and the age of men. Anyway, taken all together, the reigns of the gods and demigods before Menes add up to a period of 36,620 years. Just when Menes was pharaoh is a difficult question, with estimates ranging anywhere from 6,000 to 2,300 BC, but today most agree that he lived somewhere between 3,200 and 3,000 even. Meaning that, according to the ancient Egyptian chronology, the world began with the reign of the sun god Ra around 40,000 BC. Sumer also provides us with a king list that doubles as a history of the world. Because, at least according to one of the Sumerian creation myths, the gods bestowed the first kingship upon the first Sumerian people shortly after the world was made. The Sumerian king's list shares a property with many other Bronze Age genealogical documents, especially the Book of Genesis. The people in it live a really, really long time. The first king, for instance, is Alulim, who was given the crown by the god Enki just after he made Sumer habitable. According to the king's list, Alulum reigned for 28,800 years. His successor, Alungar, was king for 36,000 years. And the next king, who was named by the gods after Alungar and his city fell, was Enmenluana. He ruled for more than 43 millennia. In sum, the Sumerian king list puts creation at 241,200 years before the Great Flood. Just when this mythological or partially mythological flood took place is also not entirely clear, but can probably be put down to either 2900, 1640, or 1100 BC. Anyway, what's 1800 years when you're talking about 240,000? The Taoist historian Zhu Zheng did a not dissimilar kind of math in his book, Three Five Historic Records. He tracks the creation of the world back to a hairy giant named Pengu, who formed over the course of 18,000 years within a cosmic egg, which at the time represented all of existence. When he hatched, he split the earth from the sky with his axe, and then stood between them, pushing the sky up 10 feet higher every day for another 18,000 year period after which began the reign of the three sovereigns, the demigods who supposedly ruled pre-dynastic China. 
The three sovereigns were supposed to have taken over somewhere around 3000 BC, so add 18,000 to that, and then 18,000 again, and you get a date of creation of 39,000 BC. And now would be a perfect time to round out this talk about the religious dating of the world by talking about Judeo-Christianity, but they're going to do most of their math far, far later than Shizong or the Theban priests, so instead let's go back not to the beginning of the world, but to the beginning of this episode. Hecateus. After getting totally schooled by the Thebans, Hecateus seems to have altered his view of history. He no longer blindly accepted the chronology that put him 16 generations from godhood. That skepticism got passed on to Herodotus, from whom we get the story of Hecateus entering the priestly statues and who is frequently called the father of history. Herodotus also represents the first known attempt to date the world with anything other than a person's given mythological backdrop. Like Hecateus, Herodotus also saw the statues, as well as a list of kings different from the one we already talked about. Between those things and the pyramids, he thought he had a very good means to count back history. But he added another, even more important piece of evidence. Fossils. He found fossilized shells, far inland, above Memphis, and inferred from this that the Mediterranean had once extended far south. Together with the genealogical record of kings, he used this information to conclude that the world was 11,340 years old. But Herodotus's opinion was just one among many for the ancient Greeks. The poet-philosopher Lucretius thought the beginning had to be far more recent, since he had no records predating the Trojan War, which took place somewhere around 1200 BC, if it took place at all, which it probably didn't. Eratosthenes dated the fall of Troy to 1183 BC and counted that as the earliest historical event known. But he didn't necessarily agree with Lucretius that the world must have therefore been created not long before. Instead, Eratosthenes calls the Trojan War the beginning of the historicon, or historical period, the time during which written history gave him a fair indication of what had happened. Before the historicon was the mythicon, or mythological period, where things get messy and unreliable, filled with questionable tales of gods and demigods and so forth. The mythicon stretched back to the great flood of Greek mythology, the Ogygian Deluge. And before that, from creation until the flood, was the Adelon period. Adelon meaning obscure, because before that nothing could be said with certainty. Most of the Greeks and Romans who wrote about the history of the world agreed principally with Eratosthenes, although very few agreed with him on the specifics. The Roman poets Ovid and Catullus, along with the writers Censorinus and Varro, thought that the historicon should start with the first Olympiad, and that the Trojan War fell squarely within the mythicon. But regardless, all of them put the Ogygian Flood somewhere between 21 and 2400 BC, and acceded that before that, in the Adelon, nothing was for sure. Maybe the Adelon was just a couple hundred years old, and so the world was actually still quite young, as Theophilus theorized. Or else, maybe the Adelon was unthinkably long, as Ptolemy thought, and so the world was immensely old. No one could really say. And I know what you're thinking. Surely, Mark, someone must have said, someone who always loved to say everything about everything, somebody like fucking Aristotle. But Aristotle was one of those odd men out in the Western tradition who didn't believe the world had ever begun at all. In his book Physics, he argued that anything which begins to exist must come out of an underlying substratum. 
So, if matter came into existence, it must have come from something else. But, he reasoned somewhat questionably, matter didn't come from something else. In fact, matter was the thing from which other stuff came. Matter was the substratum. So, if matter came from anything, it had to come from matter, and that didn't make any sense. Therefore, matter had always been. He made a similar argument about motion later on in the book. For something to start moving is itself a sort of movement. So a first move requires a move to move it, and that move then requires another move and another and so on. We're into infinite regress territory here, and Aristotle did not care for infinite regress. Therefore, there was always movement. Always movement, always matter, always the world for eternity. The world could have no beginning and could have no end. If you've been listening for a while, you might have picked up on a problem here. European Christianity loved Aristotle, but this idea of an eternal world flew flagrantly in the face of two of the most integral of Christian teachings, namely that God had created the world from nothing and that someday soon his son was coming back to end it. Of course, if you've been listening for a while, you might also know that European Christianity didn't have direct access to Aristotle throughout most of the Middle Ages. They only experienced Aristotle through quotations, citations, and discussions from texts they were able to acquire through the Caliphate or Constantinople. So when Europeans began to get their hands on Aristotle's physics through the Muslim philosopher Ibn Rushd, who they called Averroes, in the 13th century, they kinda freaked out. Aristotle was supposed to be the smartest guy out there, the premier pagan for Christians to agree with. But suddenly Christian scholars were like, fucking Aristotle. Throughout the 1200s, various synods, bishops, and universities throughout France issued condemnations of Aristotle's physics, threatening to punish anyone who read, taught, discussed, or even heard his ideas with excommunication. But the condemnations never stuck for long and had to be repeatedly renewed, amended, and nullified. Aristotle's ideas were just too important, even though most of them were very wrong, to suppress. There was a war of ideas fought in the pamphlets and university halls of Paris between the conservative religious authority and the new Aristotle-influenced Aravoyists. Particularly, Seguer of Brabant, a professor at the University of Paris, who was accused of leading riots against the traditional French students. What exactly Seguer taught isn't entirely clear, but he was definitely interested in and probably convinced by Aristotle's arguments. The thing is, it was and is very easy to be convinced by Aristotle's arguments. They proceed logically, step by step, seemingly inextricably towards their conclusions. Matter is eternal, movement is eternal, therefore the earth is eternal, and so is humankind, and so is human thought. The anti-Averroists were so worried by Aristotle's physics precisely because they knew they were persuasive. And even the most adamant of these anti-Averroists recognized that, aside from the many heretical passages, Aristotle's writings were of immense value, both to scholarship and the church. But each attempt to try to bring his ideas to peace with Christian theology failed. The issue of Aristotle became more and more polarized, with Sigur and his Averroists basically saying, you know what, you're right, Aristotle isn't compatible with the Bible, because Aristotle is right and the Bible is wrong and the anti-Aristotelians responding, heretics, you hear that? We told you they were heretics. Then came Thomas Aquinas, the most integral Christian thinker since Augustine, and maybe the most Aristotelian thinker since Ibn Rushd. 
It's mostly through Aquinas' influence that Aristotle becomes the philosopher. Actually, it's Aquinas who nicknames him the philosopher. And his work becomes seen as essentially an extension of the Gospels, borderline inerrant. To make that happen, Aquinas took on both the anti-Aristotelians and the Averroists. When pressed by the Inquisition, yikes, sorry buddy, Sigur confessed that every article of faith was true, but still caveated that truth, saying that while he agreed with the faith on every point, it was still true that Aristotelian reason could appear to contradict the faith. This became known, probably pejoratively, as the theory of double truth, that reason and faith could lead to contradictory conclusions that were each correct. Take another of the most infamous Averroists, Boethius of Dacia. In his book De Eternitate Mundi, literally the eternality of the world, Boethius follows Aristotle's physics straight through to its natural conclusion and says, yes, anyone who logically looks at it must conclude that Aristotle is right and the world has neither beginning nor end. And anyone who concludes that is a heretic. Boethius relies on there being a sort of strata of truth, where reason is below faith. Yes, reason is right, but faith is righter. Aquinas would not stand for this contradiction. Although, in all honesty, the distinction he ends up drawing isn't so obviously different from Sigur or Boethius to those of us not living in 13th century Paris. Basically, Aquinas said, yeah, there are two truths, a rational one and a theological one, but they operate in essentially the same way, and they never contradict. Instead, rationality is the highest truth that can be attained without God. To try to do this in one very glib sentence, sorry Aquinas lovers, reason can point the pagan towards the truth, but only faith can get the believer to the truth. Aquinas wrote his own De Eternitate Mundi, which is maybe the best way to show the brilliant philosophical backflips at play here. The question, as Aquinas saw it, isn't between whether God created the world or if that world is eternal. Instead, it's whether or not God could create an eternal world. That is, can God create something that has always existed? That's chewy stuff, right? Am I getting off topic? I don't know, but don't you want to hear how he manages this? I'll try to keep this brief, and that means going straight to the best analogy in De Eternitate Mundi, fire. Aquinas says that as soon as a fire is generated, it makes heat, which means that the moment a thing begins to exist, it can begin acting within its nature. There are, therefore, instantaneous effects, things that happen and are caused to happen simultaneously. And God is the perfect, motionless, efficient cause. He could create the world in a single instant, the very first instant, so that nothing ever preceded it, including nothing. In that sense, the rational sense, the world was indeed eternal, but it was also, by faith, created. No contradiction at all. Special pleading, you say? Well, yeah. But it allowed folks like Aquinas to read and extol Aristotle without getting exiled anymore, a little too late for Sigur of Brabant, who was very much exiled and subsequently stabbed to death by his mad clerk. It also allowed most everybody to agree that the world was created at some point, even if it had always existed. So, 
When was that creation? The most obvious place to look was inside the Old Testament. After all, the book of Genesis and Exodus give a pretty thorough genealogy from Adam down to Moses, complete with the ages each patriarch lived to and the ages at which they bore their sons. Well, not quite complete. And all of those ages and dates vary depending on which Bible you used, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Aramaic, or King James. Anyway, what I mean is that through the ages, a whole lot of people have looked at the Bible or the Masoretic text and thought, it should be simple arithmetic to figure out the date of creation. And then they have pretty quickly learned how simple arithmetic it isn't. For instance, most of the early Christians who tried to count backwards, including our buddy Eusebius, Isidore of Seville, Hippolytus, and Theophilus, arrived at dates around 52 or 5500 BC. But they were using the Greek translation of the Bible, known as the Septuagint, not knowing that the older Hebrew versions of those books marked the ages of the patriarchs very differently. Most of Adam's descendants in Genesis are given an extra century of life in the Septuagint. So, when Christians got their hands on the older Masoretic text in the 10th century, they began subtracting 1,500 years or so, putting the creation around 4,000 BC. The most famous, and persnickety, of these attempts at establishing the date of creation came from James Usher, the Irish Archbishop of Armagh, who in 1650 went as far as to pinpoint not just a year, or even a month, or a day, but even the time of day. The 22nd of October, 4004 BC, at nightfall. But at the same time as Usher, a new view was growing that maybe you'd be better off trying to determine the age of the world not through religion, but through science? Which sounds like a pretty good idea. And ultimately it was. But it took a while for science to grow into the task. A good, embarrassing while. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is something preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help, it's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, relationships, trauma, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com 
slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. And by Indeed. Indeed isn't just resumes. Indeed is quality candidates. Indeed is virtual interviews. Indeed is everything you need to find the right people to help you complete your vision. That makes Indeed indispensable. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview. All on Indeed. Get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, only pay for the candidates that meet must-have qualifications, and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connections with and hiring the right talent fast and easy. With tools like Indeed Instant Match, give your quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately and Indeed skills tests that on average reduces hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skill tests or add your own. Then add your must-have requirements so you only pay for applications that meet them. According to TalentNest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash The Constant. That's Indeed.com slash The Constant, one word. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. My reading habits had become so centered on JSTOR articles and old newspaper clippings that when I finally got a moment for free reading, I didn't know what to do with myself. Luckily for me, I now have literati book clubs to pull me out of the dark. If you've always said you wanted to read more, this summer is yours for the taking. Empower your inner reading with literati book clubs, where you can read alongside the world's most inspiring authors and leaders. Join Malala, Stephen Curry, Richard Branson, and more on their next reading adventure. Literati delivers their monthly book picks straight to your door so you can spend less time finding a good book and more time actually reading one. I chose Susan Orlean, and for our first month, Susan chose Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, a book so up my alley that it really feels like it was recommended by a good friend. A good friend who just happens to have been played by Meryl Streep once. Authors, leaders, and activists spark lively conversation in 12 unique book clubs engaging a diverse community of readers from all around the world. That means you can talk about Stephen Curry's favorite books with Stephen Curry, for real. They also host exclusive interviews with the authors themselves, where you can ask your biggest questions and get the insider answers you won't find in any other book club. Move freely between clubs, or use the standard membership to access everything and choose the books you want delivered. Reimagine what a book club can be. Redeem your free trial at literati.com slash the constant. Head to literati.com slash the constant to learn more and read more with literati. L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I dot com slash the constant. One word. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The world was created on October 22nd, 4004 BC, just after nightfall. That was the conclusion Archbishop James Usher came to in 1650, after some surprisingly rigorous research into the topic. Surprising considering its near-total arbitrariness, I mean. But that was it, the final say, the definitive word on the birth of Earth. For, uh, like, maybe a decade and a half. In 1666, a couple of Tuscan fishermen got a surprisingly big bite on their line. It was a large, female, great white shark, which they somehow managed to land and bring back to their hometown of Livorno and to the Duke of Tuscany, Ferdinando de' Medici, who had the fish beheaded, take that fish, and sent to Niels Stenson for research. Stenson had been born in Copenhagen, and after surviving an outbreak of plague that killed nearly every kid around him, he went to study medicine. Once he graduated, he did the regular Republic of Letters thing of traveling around Europe to talk to experts, visit libraries, and view cabinets of curiosities. During these travels, he became associated with an alarming number of figures who we've already talked about in past episodes, the insect-obsessed sinner Jan Swammerdam, Renier de Graff, discoverer of Graffian follicles, Spinoza, Descartes, before finally falling in with Duke Ferdinando de Medici who appointed him as his in-house doctor and anatomist, and then handed him a giant shark head and said, Go to town, Niels! By the time the head made it to court, it was well and truly falling apart, rotting on the bone, but Stenson was still able to produce a report describing its jaws and one remaining eye, among other things. It was in this report that a scientist first noted the large pores around a shark's snout, which Stenson's student, Stefano Lorenzini, later described in great detail, which is why we now call these electro-organs ampullae of Lorenzini. That's just trivia, though. The most important thing that Stenson noticed about his big, stinky shark head were its teeth. When he pulled them out and looked at them, they reminded him of something. Glossopetri. Now, glossopetri were triangular mineral formations, which were sometimes found within other rocks. In medieval times, it was widely understood that they were formed when St. Paul was shipwrecked on Malta, where he was mythically said to have been bitten by an adder. Paul supposedly threw it off of him and cursed all the snakes on the island so that their tongues turned to stone and fell out of their mouths. Thus the word glossopetri, which means tongue stones. Around the time that this would have happened, if it did, which it didn't, but whatever, at the time St. Paul was around, Pliny the Elder was writing his Naturalis Historia, in which he noted that the stones were mostly found high on mountainsides, and figured, therefore, that they fell from the sky during the lunar eclipse. Either way, Glossopetri were very interesting, and very valuable, 
since alchemists believed that if you suspected a drink was poisoned, all you had to do was drop a tungstone in and it would counteract it. As luck would have it, our man Stenson was really interested in glossopetrae and had been examining them not long before Ferdinand shoved that honking fish head onto his desk. So he was in a prime position to recognize that the tungstones were shaped exactly like its teeth. This was a deeply perplexing observation. It was immediately obvious to Stenson that the tungstones must be shark teeth, but that was impossible. Tungstones were found mostly on dry land, sometimes high up in the mountains, as Pliny had said. How would a shark have gotten up there? Even more confounding, they were usually discovered inside of rocks, which Stenson understood to be about 5,500 years old, since the world was created on October 22nd, 4000 BC, and all the rocks along with it. Eventually, Stenson came up with a theory to explain how solid things could be found inside of other solid things. At the time, the leading scientific, I've got air quotes on that one, the leading scientific theory came from Athenaeus Kircher, who we talked about in our episode on miasma theory, In the Air Tonight, parentheses, I can feel it, because he was one of the first people to suggest that disease was caused by infectious microorganisms instead of bad smells. We also talked about him in that bonus episode about the Katzenklaver, a cat-powered xylophone, because he theoretically invented that, too. An overall mixed bag, that Athenaeus Kircher. Kircher was a bit of an Aristotelian himself, and his going thought on the tungstones was that the triangular shape was just a part of nature, that the process of forming stones naturally began in perfect geometric shapes, which were then covered over with the imperfection of the eventual rock. After the shark tooth, Stenson disagreed. It's worth saying that his theory on how a shark's tooth got inside a rock was also quite wrong, but not as wrong as Kircher's. Because that, my friends, is what science is. The process of getting things less wrong. Stenson postulated that all solids come from liquids and that the shape of a solid indicates the flowing motion of the liquid that formed it. See, what did I tell you? But as wrong as it was, it rationalized what Stenson had observed with the tungstones. He could tell that the stones surrounding it had formed after the fossil. But how could that be, if stones were formed along with the Earth on the night of October 22nd, 4004 BC? Simple. They must not have been. The Earth must be much older than Usher's biblical research suggested. Old enough for rocks to form around shark's teeth, and for mountains to rise out from under the sea, placing the teeth on dry land. For contrast, Kircher's theory about mountains was that they were the skeletal structure of the earth poking out of its dirt skin. Like I say, very mixed bag. After coming to this conclusion, Stenson turned his eye to geology, especially what we would now call stratigraphy, i.e. the study of rock layers, which Stenson basically founded. In his 1668 book, Dissertationis Prodromus, he looked at the strata of the earth and made some very critical observations, the most important of which was what we now call the law of superposition. As Stenson put it, At the time when a given stratum was being formed, there was beneath it another substance which prevented the further descent of the comminuted matter, and so at the time when the lowest stratum was being formed, either another solid substance was beneath it, or if some fluid existed there, then it was not only of a different character from the upper fluid, but also heavier than the solid sentiment 
of the upper fluid. From Stenson's law of superposition, he now had the tools needed to start seriously looking into the age of the Earth, which he recognized had layers, like the rings of a tree, that one could dig through and literally reach far into the distant prehistoric past. But instead, he converted to Catholicism, became a priest, and gave up on science entirely. In a speech almost suspiciously symmetrical to what we heard earlier from Thomas Aquinas, he told his friends, Fair is what we see, fairer what we have perceived, fairest what is still in veil. Very beautiful. Doesn't do us a lick of good, though, Niels. By the time of Neil's conversion, that idea of double truth had mostly fallen out of favor. Instead, it was believed by most of what we might call the young scientists in the young thing we might call science that there would be no contradictions between science and God, not just in the serpentine technical sense that Aquinas had put down, but in plain, literal truth. The tools of natural science, applied well, would necessarily reveal that the Bible had been right all along. Nobody exemplifies this idealism quite like Thomas Burnett, clerk of the closet to William of Orange, who wrote extensively and persuasively about how science, properly viewed, revealed Christianity to be right. Where Kircher thought that the shape of the Earth revealed its spinal structure, and Stenson was beginning to think it showed the planet was older than biblically anticipated, Burnett saw the unevenness of the world to be perfect evidence of Abrahamic history. In Sacred Theory of the Earth, he argued that the world had once been perfectly smooth, as well as hollow, with most of its water on the inside. It was only when God flooded the earth that the water was brought out from within, the force of which created the mountains, valleys, and other imperfections we now see on the surface, reminders of the consequences of man's sins. A lot of bright folks of the age were convinced by Burnett's argument, including no less a mind than Isaac Newton, who... Oh, crap. No, no. This is the third time this year that I've steered away from talking about the many weird ideas of Isaac Newton. Remind me that we'd better just tackle him somewhere not too far down the line in his own episode, okay? As I was saying, a lot of people agreed with Burnett, but even most of those who didn't had some curious reasons for it. Most of the arguments made against Burnett's broken post-flood Earth theory were based on incredulity that Burnett would dare suggest that God's Earth at any time, pre-flood or post, could be less than perfect. Even in these debates, around supposedly natural science, almost all of the discourse in all directions still centered on theology. With one important exception. For some reason, Robert Hooke was different. Maybe it was because he was the rare natural philosopher of the era who didn't come from money and the strictures of high society that bounded it. Or maybe he just took more literally the dictums about evidence and truth that his predecessors like Francis Bacon had laid down. Whatever the reason, Robert Hooke, unlike his fellows at the Royal Academy, never seemed interested in making sure his conclusions bent toward the accepted religious teachings. In his book, Discourses on Earthquakes, in which he put down his own thoughts on the formation of the earth, he waved away concerns of biblical congruity, writing, 
The great transactions of the alterations, formations, or dispositions of the superficial parts of the Earth into that constitution and shape which we now find them have preceded the invention of writing. And what was preserved till the times of that invention were more dark and confused that they seem to be altogether romantic, fabulous, and fictitious, and cannot be much relied on or heeded, and at best will only afford us occasions of conjecture. When we consider how great a part of the preceding time has been, oh, here's that word again, Adelon, Adelon, or unknown and unrecorded, one may easily believe that many changes may have happened to the earth of which we can have no written history or accounts. It's not just his skepticism that set him apart from the rest, though. Hook was also, coincidentally, the first person to observe microorganisms through a microscope. And with that same microscope, he had observed microscopic fossils which seemed to him to open up possible pasts even further flung than Stenson's shark teeth. Hook's book on our subject was called Discourses of Earthquakes because he came to believe that earthquakes were the key to it all. They were what made mountains rise out of the sea, carrying the fossilized shark teeth with them, and what made the land fall back into the ocean too. In Hook's view, an earthquake meant not just the sudden seismic shakes we call earthquakes today, or the eruption of volcanoes, but also slow, long-term, imperceptible lurchings that only showed their full scale over the course of time spans that went back far longer than October 22nd, 4004 BC. He recognized that the fossil record contained fish which no longer appeared to exist and supposed that there must be some sort of evolutionary force which created new species as old ones went extinct. And he figured that the strata Stenson had identified, along with those fossils, should be able to help us date the distant past, incredibly before his time ideas. Yet, just how distant did that past go? That, Hook couldn't say. Hook and Stenson had laid down a dotted line for how natural science might help us accurately date the Earth, but it would take another century before anybody made a consequential stab at doing so. That stab was taken by Georges-Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon, who today is best remembered for his work on animals, and his racial theories, which, uh, the less said about that, the better. But towards the end of his life, he published a small book called The Epochs of Nature, in which he laid down the first scientific theory for the creation and history of Earth. Of course, scientific is a sort of a loose adjective in the best of times, and 1788 was just a wee bit before the best of times and the worst of times. The age of wisdom, the age of foolishness, the epoch of belief, the epoch of incredulity, the season of light, the season of darkness, the spring of hope, the winter of despair, when we had everything before us and nothing before us, we were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way, there is no point to this, I'm just getting snagged on some dickens. What I mean to say is that the Comte de Buffon barely managed to die peacefully in bed before the French Revolution came looking for him, which it certainly would have since he was a castle-born aristocrat of the highest of high society. And while Buffon did his best to empirically puzzle out the history of the world, the tools and knowledge he had available to him proved... Meh, somewhat insufficient. As did the culture in which he was working, which was very much still aligned with Archbishop Usher, fixing creation to the acts of God. 
working with a very limited amount of geological and paleological data and with some very bad dominant paradigms like the four elements, Buffon came to an admirably consistent and well-reasoned set of conclusions. But those conclusions flew directly in the face of the biblical genesis. So, in a callback to Aquinas' double truth, he was careful to start the epochs of nature with a long disclaimer, saying that the ideas he was expressing were purely theoretical, and that obviously the real fact of the matter was that God had created the world and everything in it over the course of six days beginning around October 22nd, 4004 BC. The epochs, he assured the reader, were a thought experiment, a hypothetical exploration of what could be true if the Bible wasn't, which, of course, it was. Now, Buffon's conclusions were pretty wrong, even as they were far less wrong than the conclusions that preceded them. Science? But when you look at them in light of what he had to go on, I think his work is pretty damn impressive, so let's lay a bit of that out. First, the big stuff. He knew there was a sun, which was bright and hot, and that the Earth and several other planets were orbiting it. Everything else in the sky seemed quite far away, aside from, importantly, some comets. He knew the approximate size of Earth, as well as its average temperature. Actually, he just assumed that the average temperature of Paris, where he lived, was the average temperature of the whole planet, which is not very good thinking, but otherwise he was pretty well on track. He knew the approximate sea level, and knew that sometimes fossils of marine life were found way above it, like those tongue stones. He also knew that some of the fossils seemed to indicate creatures that were no longer around. And he knew the law of superposition that said, basically, periods of soil and rock were laid down roughly chronologically. I think that's about everything we need. So, what did Buffon come away with? Well... Since the planets, including Earth, orbit the Sun, he said that they must have come from the Sun. Comets must have struck it and knocked off pieces of the molten mass, either several different comets or one big one, Buffon didn't know, and those molten chunks of flyaway became the planets, again, including Earth. At first, then, Earth would have been a red-hot molten glob of Sun stuff, but spinning through space, it began to cool. He called this period the first epoch. The second epoch came about when the planet had cooled sufficiently enough that water vapor condensed and covered the hot rock. Knowing about the marine fossils on mountaintops, Buffon assumed that the seas must have at that point covered the whole surface of the globe, and that sea levels must have slowly fallen over the ages as the water poured into subterranean caves formed by the still cooling rock below. Volcanoes, he said, were powered by the reaction of this water hitting hot chunks of mineral, which explained why most volcanoes were near water. All of this is very clever, if ultimately incorrect, but Buffon also managed to make a number of pretty incredible insights that proved right. He was the first person to posit that coal seams were made up of compressed plant matter, and one of the first people to suggest that species could go extinct. But let's get back to the age of the planet. Buffon figured he could date it through the simple use of miniatures. Since the Earth had begun as a molten bit of sun and then cooled off over time through its spinning, he made models of the planet out of orbs of iron. Cannonballs, maybe? Seems to me like he probably used cannonballs, which he placed inside a furnace until they were molten. 
Then he removed the balls and set them spinning, measuring how long it took for them to cool to the temperature of Earth. Read Paris. He then extrapolated this out via the size of the Earth and concluded that the Earth wasn't 6,000 years old, but a whopping 75,000 years old. Again, less wrong, less wrong. Things never get right, they just get less wrong. In his notebooks, Buffon was vexed by the 75,000-year figure. The layers of rock and earth seemed to him to indicate the planet was much older, maybe even three million years old. But whether he couldn't bring himself to believe that or figured no one else would, he never published that conjecture. Buffon's reasoning was ingenious, even if the conclusions it led him to were mostly incorrect. A generation after him, another ingenious but ultimately wrong thinker would take that reasoning to the next level. That sounds like an ad break, doesn't it? We're way too late for an ad break, right? Yeah, let's keep going. William Thompson, the first Baron Kelvin, better known as Lord Kelvin, is the next figure to really take up the Age of Earth mystery. Kelvin is one of the real grand poobas of science. He proved that there was an absolute zero, a bottom of the temperature scale, and determined what it was. Negative 273.15 degrees Celsius, negative 459.67 Fahrenheit. I did that off the top of my head, do you believe it? No. And he formulated the first two laws of thermodynamics, which I have previously described and will now describe again as the most important and confidently known facts available to science. He did a lot more than that, he was largely responsible for the first transatlantic telegraph cable, formulated an atomic theory which, though wrong, was less wrong than most of the theories that had come before it. Science, I say! And for most of the 19th century, he held the loudest and most dogged belief of the age of the Earth. From when he was young, Kelvin was interested in dating the planet, and he seems to have read Buffon and thought pretty highly of him. Kelvin thought that the idea of dating the planet through temperature made a lot of sense. It's just that Buffon didn't know what Kelvin did about heat. Through his own math and the research of French mathematician Joseph Fourier, Kelvin had come up with a much more precise way to date via temperature. Think about it like an episode of CSI. And yes, I know I spent four hours telling you never to think of anything like an episode of CSI just a couple months back, but bear with me here. Think about it like an episode of CSI, where the investigators are looking to determine how long ago a murder victim died. When a person is alive, they maintain homeostasis, a stable, relatively homogeneous temperature throughout. That temperature, sans fever, averages around 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. When we die, that homeostasis ends, and our bodies begin to seek equilibrium with their environment via those pesky laws of thermodynamics. But solid bodies, and I mean any kind of body, not just body bodies, don't cool uniformly. Instead, they cool from the outside in. The temperature of the surface of a corpse might tell you a little bit about how long ago they were murdered, and that's approximately what Buffon was doing with his cannonballs. Again, I don't know that he used cannonballs. It just seems like he did, right? But if you want an accurate clock, you have to measure not the surface temperature, but the temperature gradient, the rate at which the temperature changes from the surface down. Kelvin's math is... Oh, guys... If you think I'm bad at French, you should see my math. But the details aren't narratively integral, which is always a relief to me. 
In short, the time it takes for heat to conduct away from the inside of a body is equal to the time it takes to conduct from the surface squared by the distance. So, say it's Thanksgiving and you're American, so you're cooking a turkey. You cook it in the oven for a whole bunch of hours until the whole thing is uniformly hot all the way through. Then you take that turkey out of the oven to cool. If the top centimeter of the turkey takes five minutes to cool 10 degrees, it'll take 20 minutes for the second centimeter. Using this knowledge, crime scene investigators can pretty accurately determine a time of death, provided the body is found soon enough that a measurable temperature gradient exists. And using this knowledge, Lord Kelvin assumed he could pretty accurately determine a time of birth for the planet. Like Buffon, Kelvin began with the premise that the Earth started out molten. Based on research experiments he'd read about melting rocks and crystals, he marked that starting point at 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit. He also had research about temperature gradients taken from several different places around the world. From these, he figured an average temperature gradient of 1 50th of a degree Fahrenheit per foot. Every 50 feet down you dig, the soil goes up 1 degree. The actual gradient measurements he had varied pretty considerably, but when he plugged them in, he was able to come to a rough guess of the Earth's age. It was somewhere between 24 and 400 million years old. That's quite a range, but more importantly, it was way, way, way older than Buffon's guess, let alone Archbishop Usher's. The sheer, yawning scale of the number before him might have given Lord Kelvin pause, except that he'd already come across a number of that size another way round. See, Kelvin was also interested in the sun and where its heat came from, which, if you think about it, is a real doozy of a question, maybe even more vexing than the age of the planet. Because there is so much heat coming off of the sun. John Herschel, I told you last time that we'd talk about John Herschel, but it's not going to happen yet, so let's put him off along with Newton. John Herschel had put it this way in 1833. The sun's rays are the ultimate source of almost every motion which takes place on the surface of the earth. By its heat are produced all winds, by their vivifying actions vegetables are elaborated from inorganic matter and become in their turn the support of animals and of man, and the sources of those great deposits of dynamical efficiency which are laid up for human use in our coal strata. How something so big could produce so much heat was a real puzzler throughout the 19th century. Initially, Kelvin had thought it could be provided heat by meteors hitting it, not unlike Buffon's idea of where planets came from, but soon enough he was presented with astronomical observations that disproved that. So, Kelvin got on board with a theory proposed by Hermann von Helmholtz in 1854. Helmholtz said that the heat of the sun could be produced by the effects of gravity on its huge mass. The sun was so big that gravity caused it to contract, and its heat was a product of that contraction. This gelled very well with Kelvin's observations on thermodynamics. It also has the peculiar property of being mm, partly right. In 1862, Lord Kelvin announced that he had arrived at an upper limit for the age of the sun, based upon the theory, which he called certainly true, that it had been initially formed by the accretion of meteors and then powered by gravitational contraction. He took the sun's mass and divided it by the rate at which the sun radiates heat and concluded that it was between 20 and 30 million years old. Therefore, it seemed to Kelvin that the age of the Earth was around 24 million. 
This might seem like some good, objective, dispassionate sciencing, but that is not so. Because three years before Kelvin published his Age of the Earth, a different famous scientist had published a different famous book, Charles Darwin. All right, let's pause another second. Darwin and Kelvin did not get along. Kelvin was a creationist, after all, while Darwin was, you know, Darwin. And in the first edition of Origin of Species, he had made his own stab at trying to date the Earth. He had to, because his theory of natural selection required the planet to be sufficiently old for all the millions of now existent species to have originated. Darwin did some back-of-the-envelope math based on erosion, which was itself wrong, but, well, you know, less wrong science, and concluded that the Earth was at least 300 million years old. When Kelvin published his result, 24 million years, give or take, it was a direct shot at Darwin. In the paragraph following his date, Kelvin says in no uncertain terms that Darwin's date is wrong, and therefore so is his theory. And it's easy to say that Kelvin was motivated by his religious beliefs, and it wouldn't be wrong to either. But it would be less wrong to note that what the 19th century was looking at here was a real and profound paradox. The laws of thermodynamics and the theory of natural selection were the two most important and world-changing ideas of the age, and they seemed to be in direct contradiction. Natural selection was an incredibly powerful theory that had begun accruing volume upon volume of supporting evidence from nearly the moment it was published. The laws of thermodynamics were, as I've already said, the most sure facts known to science. But when it came to dating the Earth, it didn't seem like there was a way for both of them to be true. Natural selection required the world to be hundreds of millions of years old, but thermodynamics said the sun couldn't possibly shine that long. Kelvin was such an eminent figure, and his math so terrifically solid, that he just knocked the wind out of Darwin. In later editions of Origin of Species, he removed not just his estimates on the age of the Earth, but all mentions of timescales altogether. Throughout the rest of the 19th century, there was a war of letters in the pages of every major scientific journal, astronomers and physicists versus geologists and biologists. The latter groups continued to find reason to think the Earth was much older than Kelvin's estimates, but Kelvin countered all of it with what amounted to a very long, loud, and loquacious, well then tell me how. How could the sun produce heat for hundreds of millions of years? And, if the Earth were that old, why wasn't it a solid block of ice? Nobody had an answer. Until 1896. We've covered this series of events a few times before, so I won't belabor them now, but in 1896, Henri Bacquerel accidentally left uranium crystals on top of some photographic plates for a few cloudy days, and when he developed the plates, they were full of glowing bits. This was the beginning of our knowledge of what Marie Curie named radioactivity. Over the next two decades, alpha rays, beta rays, gamma rays, and x-rays were all discovered, and in 1903, Pierre and Marie Curie figured out that radium salts release heat. Radiation seemed like the synthesis of Kelvin and Darwin. The sun couldn't be hundreds of millions of years old if it was heated only by contraction, but maybe it could be if it were heated by contraction and radiation. This notion was, one last time, not quite right, but less wrong. Science! Two years after the Curie's radium salt revelation, 
Einstein published his special theory of relativity, which quantified a direct relationship between mass and energy. It seemed clear to most astronomers in the early 20th century that special relativity held the key for explaining the sun's action. But what was that key, and where was it? The answer didn't come until 1920, when Sir Arthur Eddington gave an address to the British Association for the Advancement of Science. A year earlier, Francis William Aston had been looking for isotopes of neon, and in the process had made some very accurate measurements of the masses of different atoms. These measurements happened to show that the atomic mass of four hydrogen nuclei were a little bit heavier than the mass of one helium nucleus. 4.032 versus 4.003. What Eddington realized was that, according to good old Einstein and his good old E equals mc squared, when hydrogen fused into helium, that little bit of extra mass would be converted into a whole fucking lot of energy. Enough to keep the sun burning for a hundred billion, that's Carl Sagan, billion years. That was it. The paradox between Kelvin and Darwin was gone. But that only told us how old the sun could be, not how old the Earth actually was. For that answer, science would have to go back to radioactivity again. No, radioactivity didn't fully explain the heat of the sun, but it did point to a way of determining how old really old things were. After hearing about Becquerel's uranium salts, scientists all around the world began studying the new radioactivity, including a New Zealand physicist named Ernest Rutherford. Rutherford not only discovered alpha and beta rays and radon, but he also discovered that thorium gave off a radioactive gas and that said gas decayed in the same amount of time, no matter its size. In other words, he discovered radioactive half-life. When studying thorium further, Rutherford and his assistant Frederick Soddy kept coming up against a problem. Somehow their samples kept getting contaminated with helium. Soon enough, they realized what this all meant radioactive isotopes decay until they reach the form of a stable element, and they decay at fixed rates, which means that you can determine the age of a rock by measuring its atomic makeup. In 1904, Rutherford was able to date a rock sample by measuring the decay from radium to helium in that rock. He announced it as 40 million years old, which directly contradicted the venerable Lord Kelvin, who, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck, turned up by surprise in the audience of Rutherford's next lecture. Gulp? As Rutherford recalled, I came into the room, which was half dark, and presently spotted Lord Kelvin in the audience, and realized that I was in trouble at the last part of my speech dealing with the age of the Earth, where my views conflicted with his. To my relief, Kelvin fell fast asleep, but as I came to the important point, I saw the old bird sit up, open an eye, and cock a baleful glance at me. Then a sudden inspiration came, and I said, Lord Kelvin has limited the age of the Earth, provided no new source was discovered. That prophetic utterance refers to what we are now considering tonight, radium. Behold, the old boy beamed upon me. Radiometric dating held the key to finally working out the Earth's age once and for all. 
1927, Arthur Holmes published The Age of the Earth, An Introduction to Geological Ideas, in which he estimated that aforementioned age as between 1.6 and 3 billion years. It was truly brilliant work, and through a dogged campaign, Holmes managed to convince the entire scientific community of the value of his dating system almost single-handedly. The only hitch was that Holmes' estimate wasn't right, just less wrong. His method, which relied upon the rate uranium decays into lead, was somewhat crude. Today, the consensus is that Earth is 4.54 or 4.55 billion years old. To attain that extra level of accuracy, geochemist Claire Cameron Patterson had to use much more accurate instruments in much more fine-tuned surroundings and on much purer samples. And in the process, he accidentally discovered one of the greatest public health crises in human history. That is next time. Music for today's episode provided through Epidemic Sound. Our website is constantpodcast.com where you can find our merch store, old episodes, an outmoded press overview that may be never properly updated, and our social media presences. At Constant Podcast for Twitter, The Constant Podcast on Instagram, Facebook exists but it does nobody any good to acknowledge it, and our Patreon where you can sign up to receive bonus episodes and support the making of this show is patreon.com slash theconstant. We're a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Soonish, a show from journalist Wade Rausch that brings you stories and conversations about technology and the future and what we can do to bend that future in a better direction. In his most recent episode, Wade takes us on a tour of The Engine, a new venture capital firm started by MIT that's taking huge risks on companies most other VC firms would never touch. One of them is Commonwealth Fusion Systems, where engineers aim to build a working nuclear fusion energy plant within 10 years. You'll hear why Engine CEO Katie Ray thinks Commonwealth could be a trillion-dollar company, and why she thinks investing in so-called tough tech problems like these can be profitable for everyone. Listen at soonishpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois where in 1946 Willard Libby discovered a new carbon isotope, and with it radiocarbon dating, this has been The Constant. <laughs>